Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 239. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is a fantastic day here in sunny, the headquarters of Starship Sova. Tell you what's coming in this show. We have Cheapskates by Adam Peart. Little fact article there. Then we have a little short fiction by Gregory Benford. The main fiction is Rust Islands by Storm Constantine. Then to wrap things up, we have first chapters. 100 Years of Viscitude by Andres Bergen. That is today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So first up then is Cheapskate, Adam Squire. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. This is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates. Well, my Kindle has gotten its first battle scar thanks to a drop out of my coat pocket into the space between the car seat and the center console, it now boasts several short but deep scratches in the upper corner, revealing the shiny metal beneath. Ah, well, it just makes me look tough, right? Like a nerd. With a nose ring. Hmm, maybe not. Anyway, the injury has put me in mind of battles and fighting, so I'll use that to inform this month's review on Cheapskates. Two months ago, I reviewed Edgar Rice Burroughs' A Princess of Mars for you, which inspired the colossal flop film John Carter. So much of a flop, in fact, that it lost Disney $200 million, and is quite possibly the reason Disney Studios' head, Rich Ross, resigned. The Economist termed it the worst flop ever. As a radio program Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me suggested, at least part of the problem was the name change from A Princess of Mars, which Disney thought would only appeal to girls, to John Carter, which appeals to no one. So, given that my last review keyed off of an undisputed loser film, I thought with this one I'd take inspiration from a movie hit. The Hunger Games, based on the young adult novel by Suzanne Collins. This movie, in contrast to John Carter is expected to earn $300 million before it leaves theaters. For the uninitiated, The Hunger Games takes place in a North America of the future, now called Panem, with clear haves and have-nots. Most of the nation is divided into 12 districts, with each district specializing in a different service or commodity. For the most part, these districts live on a subsistence level, nearly medieval in their level of technology. In contrast is the much smaller, but technologically far superior capital, located in approximately Colorado. These FOP-like people are the haves, 
and most of them live a sheltered life of luxury. As the book opens, nearly three-quarters of a century have passed since a 13th district tried to lead a rebellion upon the capital. The result was a devastating nuclear bombing of District 13 and the establishment of the Hunger Games. These are a demoralizing annual contest that throws a teenage boy and girl from each district for a total of 24 into a fight to the death that's part gladiator arena, part reality television show. Into this scene, we meet Katniss Everdeen, a de facto master archer from her illicit hunting trips into the woods for food. Everdeen lives in District 12, Old Appalachia, and home to Panem's coal mining industry. As the book opens, Katniss must face the annual ceremony where the so-called tributes are chosen by the drawing of names. The poorest are at the worst disadvantage here, as subsistence food and water can be obtained by eligible teenagers if they elect to put their name in more than once. I won't ruin how it happens for you, but I'm sure it's obvious by now that Katniss gets sucked into the games and finds herself fighting for survival. It's a story concept that's chilling and all the more compelling for that reason. Certainly worth your time to read. But wait a minute, some of you might be saying by now. Isn't this cheapskates, Mr. Adam? The last time I checked, Amazon was selling the Kindle edition of The Hunger Games for $5. I mean, a whole $5. Ah, you are correct, Mr. Strawman Questioner. But have no fear, for I shall now let you know three ways that you can, legally, read an ebook copy of The Hunger Games for free. Your first option is to become a proud, albeit temporary, member of Amazon Prime. This is Amazon's premium service that lets you get two-day shipping for free, free streaming of movies and TV shows, and, for our purposes, one free ebook from the Kindle Owners Lending Library. This last one basically lets you borrow one ebook from selected titles once a month, and Hunger Games is one of the most popular titles on the list. Everyone can get a free one-month trial and then cancel, meaning that you can at least snag Hunger Games to read for free. Don't forget to cancel, though, unless you actually like and use the service, because you'll be shelling out $79 per year for the service after the free month. And sorry to everyone across the pond. From what I can see at the moment, it looks like you can only get this one to work in the States right now. There's Prime for Amazon.uk, but all you get is free delivery. Maybe if you raise a bit of a ruckus about it, worth a shot. If you're into something a little more socially based, take a look at Lendl. It's at L-E-N-D-L-E dot M-E. No dot com at the end, no www at the front. This site takes advantage of an option available through Amazon that allows you to lend any book you own on your Kindle for up to two weeks. Hence, Lendl. Lend plus Kindle. This option was originally meant for friends and family, I think, but Lendl lets you lend and request to borrow books from anyone signed up for the service. With the popularity of the Hunger Games out there, there's a lot of copies available to borrow, more than 1,300 as of this recording. Some drawbacks, the site lists books of all, and I do mean all kinds, it's best to know what you're looking for and search for it specifically if you want to avoid an inadvertent eyeful. 
Also, not all books are lendable. Pretty much the entire catalog of Isaac Asimov, for instance, as well as the two sequels to The Hunger Games. The full trilogy, however, is lendable. Who knows? Another bummer is you only get the book for two weeks, and the lender can't read it during that time. Also, each book can only be lent once. Also, in order to borrow on Lendl, you have to have credits. You do get two credits just for signing up, but to get more than that, you have to actually list some paid ebooks as available to lend. So, here's a trick to accomplish that, but still not spend any money. Keep a close eye on the top free Kindle ebook lists on Amazon. It's pretty common for a book that normally costs a dollar or two, sometimes even more, to go on sale for free. Download enough of these when they are free, and list them on Lendl, and it doesn't take too long to accumulate more credits. This site obviously involves a little effort and some patience. You're waiting on another user to lend you the book, after all. You can decide whether it's worth saving the money. Another pointer. Make sure your email address on Lendl matches your email on Amazon, or the lend will go nowhere. The fact that I know this, of course, has nothing to do with any past experience I may or may not have had. Ah, yes. Again, to those listening in the UK, this is still just an option in the United States. Sorry, blokes. Finally, and this is my personal favorite, you can sign up for your local library's e-library service. Yes, this does involve getting out of your chair and making a trip over to your local library, but I promise after that you'll rarely have to see the light of day. Good news, Brits. Uh, From what I can see, there's a good shot this is an option for you. Just check at your library. Basically, here's how it works. Local libraries will sign up with a lending service for ebooks, digital audiobooks, or both. Among these are Overdrive, OneClick Digital, and 3M Cloud Library. Once you've signed up through your local library's process for these services, you can log into the site from the comfort of your own computer terminal at home, select one of the digital audiobooks or ebooks that you would like to read, and borrow it from the library. The drawback is that it acts like a regular library book. There's only as many copies available as a particular library has purchased, so if the one you want is already checked out, you have to place a hold and wait for it to become available. In other words, while free, this is not the best option for the impatient. However, it's been my experience that there's almost always something worthwhile available instantly to enjoy while you wait for your turn on the holds list. Because of their popularity, The Hunger Games and the sequels, Catching Fire and Mockingjay, are nearly always available for borrowing from the library. This is, in fact, how I made my own way through the series in audiobook format. But let's say it's not worth the hassle or the wait to get Suzanne Collins' book in your hands for free. Or maybe you have already read through the Hunger Games series. What then, and what next? If I may, I'd like to modestly propose For the Win by Cory Doctorow as the next free ebook you should tackle. The Thick Bespectacled Doctorow is based out of the UK and has written New York Times bestsellers, been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, Sunburst, and Locus, and won the Prometheus Award for Libertarian Sci-Fi. He's also one of the greatest friends of the Cheapskate, 
as nearly the entire corpus of his work is available for free download from his site, craphound.com. That's C-R-A-P-H-O-U-N-D. He goes into more detail about why he provides his hard work for free there, as well as in his introduction to the book. I'll provide direct links on my new blog site at cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. That's spelled C-H-E-A-P-S-K-A-T-E-S review.wordpress.com. Given his location in the UK and his friendliness to the free, not to mention the quality of his writing, you've likely heard Dr. O's work here before, right here on the sofa. Okay, now. I've always found reviews that draw comparisons between two works to often be a bit of a stretch, existing more in the mind of the reviewer than from any real connection. So let me briefly describe where I see similarities between Hunger Games and For the Win, then I'll jump in and review Dr. O's book on its own merits. Number one, both have strong teenager protagonists with a story told from their perspective. Number two, a theme of games that are far more than just games. Number three, a struggle against a larger power by oppressed underdogs. The capital, in the case of the Hunger Games, game companies, oppressive governments, and gold farmer bosses in For the Win. Number four, violence. So much violence. The first obvious difference is that For the Win has an ensemble cast of protagonists, whereas Hunger Games is all from the perspective of Katniss. For the Win follows a dozen or so young people working around the globe, primarily China, India, Singapore, and the United States, in the virtual worlds of massively multiplayer online games. We're slightly into the future, but you really have to be paying attention to notice it. Apart from the online games that don't exist yet, you have little hints, a thumbprint lock on a case, an iris scan to start a car, and a referral to World of Warcraft as existing, a bit tongue-in-cheek, as in the dawn of time. The ways that the characters make money in the games are as varied as the people themselves, as straight-up gold farmers, so-called expedition guides for rich clients, and mechanical Turks working for the game companies, to add human intelligence to the interactive experience. There are even hired hunters tasked with taking out rival farming organizations in-game, at least at the beginning. These were some intriguing insights for me. I've heard of gold farming, of course, but the depth and complexity of this game under the game was fascinating. Dr. himself becomes a character of sorts, as the action of the story is regularly interspersed with essays. The topics include musings on fun as backing the value of virtual money, speculation on how equations might be able to predict the real-world value of digital items within a game, and the single most entertaining explanation of inflation I've ever read. It includes a bedpan. To a certain extent, the jumping from one character to another and the insertion of the essays can get confusing and distract from the rising action of the book. But Dr. O is such a skilled craftsman of language, you'll hardly notice. Take, for example, this early passage describing life in big city India. In the village, there'd been the bird calls, the silence, and peace. Times when everyone wasn't always watching. In Mumbai, there was nothing but the people, 
the people everywhere, so that every breath you breathed tasted of the mouth that had exhaled it before you got it. Or this early description of a character's independent gold farming venture getting shook down. One by one, the man dispassionately smashed all eight screens, letting out little smoker's grunts as he worked. Then with a much bigger, guttier grunt, he took hold of one end of the shelf and tipped it on its edge, sending the smashed monitors on it sliding onto the floor, taking the comics, the clamshell, the ashtray, all of it sliding to the narrow bed that was jammed up against the desk, then onto the floor in a crash as loud as a basketball match in a glass factory. As this last passage might suggest to you, playing games for a living is not all, well, fun and games. It's surprisingly gritty, hot, exhausting, thankless work, and from time to time, violent, bloody, and even deadly. Because of this, the characters in the book are open to the message of Big Sister Noor, a former factory worker and union organizer in Singapore who sees potential in unionizing the online workers, providing the impressive benefit of organizing workers of all kinds across national borders. Bit by bit, they lay the groundwork for a game worker strike, struggling for fair wages and benefits, both in-game and out. Labor unions and international finance might not sound like the most gripping read, but Dr. O draws you in with his vivid writing of the game worlds, as if the people playing them are actually inhabiting their avatars in the games. Anyone who has played these games can tell you, that's what it actually feels like. In fact, at times the world of games seems to shape how the book's characters view the real world, describing events and environments within the frame of computer games. And for those who might question the importance of games as being worthy of unionization, Doctor reminds us through a character that huge sectors of the economy are little more than pressing buttons and everyone agreeing to make believe that value has changed hands. There are chilling moments of bloodshed and poignant moments of deep grief, like this one, describing a pirate radio host in China broadcasting after her personal loss related to the gamer strikes. After some futzing with the computer, she signaled to him that they were live and commenced to howl like a wounded thing. Sisters, my sisters, she said, and tears coursed down her face. They killed him tonight. Poor Tank, my Tank. His name, his real name was Jia Yi Lu, and I loved him, and never harmed another human being, and the only thing he was guilty of was demanding decent pay, decent working conditions, vacation time, job security. The things we all want from our jobs. The things our bosses take for granted. They raided us last night, the vicious Jing Cha, working for the bosses as they always have and always will. They beat down the door and the boys ran like the wind, but they caught them and they caught them and they caught them. Lou and I tried to escape through a back way and they... She broke then, tears coursing down her face, a sob bigger than the room itself, escaping her chest. Dr. O is well-researched and creative in his descriptions of the protests in the games. My personal favorite was protesters avoiding police retribution against loud demonstrations by instead buying ice cream and moving in a slow, organized circle as they ate it, 
It's just brilliant, and I'm surprised there hasn't been a real-world parallel. Compared to The Hunger Games, I think For the Win hits closer to home. It's more contemporary and relatable. You realize how closely what's described parallels the situation of real workers in the world today, in video game work or not. As for weaknesses of the book, well, for me the ending just sort of... ended. I was hoping for more resolution on a number of the plot points Dr. Oud set up. With any luck, this just means that he's planning on a sequel at some point in the future. There were a few more copy editing and formatting issues than my hardwired copy editor brain would care for, but I can't truly complain. I am wondering if some of these were as a result of the fan-initiated conversion over into the Kindle file format. Finally, a small oddity to note. Dr. O has chosen in the first half of the book to insert dedications to his favorite bookstores between chapters. I was trying to come up with an appropriate comparison to describe these and was thinking of public radio sponsorship messages, but it's not quite right. After all, there's no monetary gain to him for doing it. He just wanted to. In the end, I think it's more like the dedication plaques you might see on park benches and statues. Easy enough for the eyes to pass over, maybe sweet and heartwarming if you do notice them, but ultimately, I think they mean a little more to the one who put them there rather than the one looking at them. If you enjoy For the Win, Dr. O asks that you actually not contribute directly to him. Basically, this is because he doesn't want to cut out the editors for all the work and contribution they made to the book. Instead, he asks those who want to support the work to make a purchase of a physical book with the purpose of it going to a school library. He also asked for libraries wanting one of these books to send in their interests as well. The full instructions of how to do this are contained within the ebook. I have to respect this concept that I haven't seen anywhere else. If audiobooks are how you roll, there's also a free fan cast available for download at audio.colbyjack.net produced with Dr. O's permission. The reading is professional and expressive, but there's a music undercurrent throughout, and it becomes so complicated as to be distracting at times. I'll link to it and the ebook from my site as well. Well, that's all for Cheapskates today. Thanks for sticking with it. I know this one was longer than usual. Tune in next time when I'll let you know how to get Star Wars novellas for free. Yep, Star Wars. Until then, this is Adam, reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. I get, to be quite honest, I get lots of emails, you know, regarding Adam's work there. It's, it, he's came on with these little fact articles and doing a fantastic job. And fool, he's, he stuck his hand up and volunteered for a narrator as well. Oh, Next up is a little short story by Gregory Benford, titled Caveat Time Traveller. Give you a little heads up for Gregory Benford. He is a physicist, educator, author, and was born in Mobile, Alabama on January 30th, 1941. Benford is a professor of physics at the University of California, Irvine, where he's been a faculty member since 1971. He served as an advisor to the Department of Energy, NASA, and the White House Council on Space Policy. How just cool is that? Dad, what do you do? 
What do you do for a living, Dad? In 1989, Benford was the host and scriptwriter for the television series A Galactic Odyssey, which described modern physics and astronomy from the perspective of evolution of the galaxy. The eight-part series was produced for an international audience by Japanese National Broadcasting. Mr. Benford is the author of over 20 novels, including Jupiter Project, Artifact, Against Infinity, Ida, and the fantastic Timescape. He is a two-time winner of the Nebula Award, and he's also won the John W. Campbell Award, the Australian Dittmar Award, and in 1995, the Lord Foundation Award for Achievement in Sciences. And in 1990, he got the United Nations Medal in Literature. Do you know what I mean? Come on. You've got a new anthology out at the minute, Anomalies, which is a collection of short stories. I'll put a link onto Gregory's site as well. Have a look there. Like I say, this, this, is, what, this is the guy that wrote Timescape. I've got another little short story by Gregory, and this one appeared in the Nature magazine as well. Hopefully we'll try and get a nice, some nice long stories off Greg as well. This story is narrated by... Brandy Tarvin, and she is the editor of Tied In, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers Newsletter. Brandy has a finger on the pulse for every author who produces fiction with other people's characters. Her first published work, a short story in the Transformers Legends, was an anthology based on the popular toy series. She is now a regular contributor to prose material for the Shadowrun series of role-playing games and related fiction. Her recent work includes Legends of Beemen. At this moment, Brandy is working on Latchkeys, a collective new YA series. She's also a, a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and the Horror Writers Association. I put a little link on to Brandy's site as well. Brandy, thank you so much. This is just a, a lovely narration. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Caveat Time Traveler by Gregory Benford He was easy to spot. Clothes from the 21st century. A dazed look. Eyes a bit rattled. I didn't have to say anything. He blurted out, Look, I'm from the past. A time traveler. But I get snapped back there in a few minutes. I know. We stood in a small street at the edge of the city. Dusk creeping in. Distant glazed towers gleamed in the sunset, and pearly lights popped on down along the main road. Jaunters always chose to appear at dawn or dusk, where they might not be noticed, but could see a town. No point in transporting into a field somewhere, which could be any time at all, even the far past. Good thing he couldn't see the city rubble, too, or realize this was how I made my living. His mouth twisted in surprise. You do? I thought I might be the first to come here. To this time. I gave him a raised eyebrow. No, there was another last week. Really? The professor said the other experiments failed. They couldn't prove they'd been into the future at all. They always wanted to talk. Though they'd learn more with their mouths closed. He rattled on. I have to take something back to show I was here, something... How about this? I pulled out a slim metal cylinder. Apply it to your neck five times a day, and it extracts cancer precursors. In your era, that will extend your average lifetime by, uh, several years. 
His eyebrows shot out. Wow! Sure! He reached for it, but I snatched it back. What do I get in exchange? That startled him. What? I don't have anything you could use. He searched his pockets in the old-fashioned, wide-labeled jacket. How about money? He pulled out a fistful of bills. I'm not a collector, and those are worthless now, inflated away in value. The time jaunter blinked. Look, this is one of the first attempts to jump forward and back. I don't have... I know! We've seen jaunters from your era already. Enough to set up a barter system. That's why I had this cancer canceller. Confusion swarmed his face. Lady, I'm just a guinea pig here, a volunteer. They didn't give me... I pointed. Your watch is a pleasant anachronism. I'll take that. I gave him the usual ceramic smile. He sighed with relief. Great. But I kept the cylinder away from him. That's an opener offer, not the whole deal. He glanced around, distracted by my outfit. I always wore it when the chronosensor's network said there was a jaunt about to happen. Their old dress styles were classic, so they weren't prepared for my peekaboo leggings, augmented breasts, and perfectly symmetric face. The lipstick was outrageous for our time, but fit right into notorious 21st century kink. He raised a flat ceramic thing, and it whirred, taking pictures like the rest. I still hadn't learned whenever this guy came from. Your pictures won't develop, I told him with a seemingly sympathetic smile. Huh? They gave me this. You've heard of time paradoxes, yes? Space-time resolves those nicely. You can't take back knowledge that alters the past. All that gets erased automatically, a kind of information cleansing. Very convenient physics. Startled, he glanced at his compact camera. So, it'll be blank? Yes. My left eye told me the chronosensor network was picking up an approaching closure. I leaned over and kissed him on the mouth. Thanks! It's such a thrill to meet someone from the ancient times. That shook him even more. Best to keep them off balance. So, how do I get the cancer thing, he said, eyes squinting with a canny cast. Let me have your clothes. What? You want me naked? I can use them as antiques. That cancer stick is pretty expensive, so I'm giving you a good deal. He nodded and started shucking off his coat, pants, shoes, wallet, coins, cash, set of keys, reached for his shorts, never mind the underwear. Oh. He handed me the bundle, and I gave him the cancer stick. Hey, thanks. I'll be back. We just wanted to see... Pop! He vanished. The cancer stick rattled on the ground. It was just a prop, of course. Cancer was even worse now. They never caught on. Of course, they don't have much time. That made the fifth this month, from several different centuries. Time was like a river, yes. Go with the flow, it's easy. Fight against the current, and space-time strips you of 
everything you're carrying back. Pictures, cancer stick, memories. He would show up not recalling a thing. Just like the thousands of others, I had turned into a nifty little sideline. The past never seemed to catch on. Still, they stimulated interest in those centuries where time jaunters kept hammering against the laws of physics like demented moths around a light bulb. I hefted the clothes and wallet. These were in decent condition, grade 0.8 at least. They should fetch a pretty price. Good. I needed to eat soon. Time paid off after all. A sucker born every minute. Yes! And there were so many, many moments in the lost, rich past. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Gregory Benfords. Greg, thank you so much. And Brandy, thank you. Like I say, I put links on to both sites. Please pop over there, say hello to Gregory, and pop over to Brandy's site as well. Next up is The Main Fiction, and it's by Storm Constantine, and the story is Rust Islands. Now, when I was kind of digging away through, or, you know, reading up in Interzone in the kind of the 90s and early 2000s, it was Storm's name was there just, you know, in Interzone, a regular writer there and a fantastic writer. One of our first short stories, They Hunt, came out in 1988 and right up to 2010, Where the Vampire Lives. I tell you what, I always remember is she wrote a book with Michael Moorcock in 2000, Silver Heart, and that always just stands in my mind. It was like, wow, do you know what I mean? This, who is this writer writing with Michael Moorcock? What also is good about Storm is she's got her own publishing company called Imanian Press. Imanian Press was founded in 2003, and it was basically to let Storm publish her own, like, back catalogue work. And she says it was actually, it quickly became obvious, you know, there was other things that, you know, other avenues to explore. And they publish at the moment horror, fantasy, science fiction by new and established authors, and also fact articles. That's now a, a big thing over there at Imanian Press. Or should I say fact books, not fact articles. The first non-fiction line was actually kicked off for Emanion Press in 2004 and they put out Taylor Elwood's controversial pop culture magic. Do pop over to Emanion Press, there is just loads. You know, there's like writers who kind of we know about and there's all these new ones that I'm just discovering here. Like I say, this story came out in Interzone 117 in March 1997. And it, that, that's when it was edited by David Pringle. How long ago? <laughs> It is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis. This is just, like I said, Amy's just come and did this story. And actually, this story that has been narrated twice by Amy, because we did it ages ago on, this is when kind of Amy had like a shoddy mic, and it was, she's always thought, you know, if I ever get around to upgrading the microphone, which she did a while ago, this was one of the stories that needs to be kind of redone. So here it is. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present the Rust Islands, by Storm Constantine. I found it on my second dig, in the catacombs near Samadhi Lake. It was the color that caught my eye, a small, green thing. I lifted it from the rubble, a cylinder that left a verdigris powder on my gloves. At first, I thought it was just another holovid chip, 
more dim, fragmented nostalgia that would depress rather than entertain, wrinkled memories of the past when this world had been more than just a graveyard. We'd turned up a lot of junk like that, but then our home planet was nothing but one big rubbish heap now. I tucked the cylinder into my belt pouch and then forgot about it. I was delving around on my own beneath the harsh glare of portal lights. There were no skull faces watching me, no bones in the darkness. We called that place the catacombs, but it had once been a city, now buried under mountains of refuse and hastily constructed buildings that had fallen during the last great ecological war. Abos scuttled on its surface like cockroaches. Anything of interest and value had been plundered centuries ago. Recently, public interest had been rekindled in Old Earth, and a team from the historical facility on the organic had, after a struggle, secured funding to make a journey through space to come and sift over the remains. I was a member of that team. But what we'd found was just like the great pyramids of legend empty, plundered tombs. We could learn only from the shadows that civilization had left behind in the sand. Around our camp, from horizon to horizon, stretched the rustling hulks of the long dead city. We found the climate far too hot. Little grew on the rubble. Although it was teeming with hundreds of tiny gray cats, the abos worshipped them and, for food, hunted Goliath spiders, mice, and rats. They looked like zombie to us, ash covered and dead eyed, and they had little interest in us. We had not been greeted as gods, which I think disappointed Tall Lady, our coordinator, a little. When we told them we'd come from a country far, far up in the sky, they simply shrugged and said they thought many people lived that way. They could not understand our eagerness about the past and gave crazy answers to our questions. There was no curiosity in them whatsoever. They seemed dull creatures, not at all how we'd expected, and it was hard for some of us to accept we shared a common heritage with these people. Avoiding everyone, I went back to the compound at sunset and sneaked into my cabin. Our camp consisted of a row of rover trucks which doubled as caravans. The living space was incredibly cramped. We had a power generator and a canteen hut. The showers didn't always work, and there were insects and monstrous arachnids forever scuttling round them. We'd been working on the site for months, and I'd started to get homesick for the organic. It seemed so far away it might not exist. I wanted to walk beneath the stars amid the lush fern trees. I wanted to feel the universe spin around me. I didn't need dirty heat and the threat of disease. These feelings were unfamiliar to me. I'm an archaeologist, used to working on many different colonized worlds. Some I've seen were more hostile than Old Earth, yet here the weight of history pressed down upon me, and I was depressed by the pathetic remnants of the birthplace of our empire. 
Would all our worlds eventually come to this? My only comfort was the knowledge that the retrieval bus was already on its way through subspace to pick us up. Our sojourn was nearly over. I needed a shower, and as I tossed my trousers into the fold-out chair beneath the tiny window, the little cylinder fell out and rolled across the floor. I looked at it for a moment, lying there in the red rays of the sinking sun. It seemed somehow significant. The moment was silence itself, but for the hum of the cooling unit and the faint call of one of my team workers through the thick lens of my window. I left the cylinder lying there on the floor while I indulged myself with a welcome cooling shower. Then, naked and wet, I sidled to my desk where my jacket was lying and took my A.I., Lucrezia, out of the deepest pocket. Once I'd set her on the table, she took form by steadying herself on limbs that spidered out from her belly, then flipping out her monitor and shaking it until it became firm. I showed her the cylinder. Can you read this? Delicately, she extended two arms that were feathered with delicate, clawed clamps and took the cylinder from my hand. Inquisitive antennae snaked out and quivered over the cylinder's surface. She pulled it towards her mandibles to taste its atomic structure. What is it? I asked her, walking to the cooling unit behind the door to find myself a carton of guava juice. Lucrezia hummed a little. It's a quirk she has, evidence of her personality. Mm, it's a recording built into a playback system. Special recording for direct neural experience. There are minute sockets set into either end. More yesteryear's pleasure wear, I said, slamming the cool unit's door. It had a tendency to swing open again. Not exactly. Lucrezia gently turned the cylinder in her mandibles. Then what? Lucrezia extended an arm towards me. That is for us to find out. I sat on the chair by the desk, plonking the carton of juice down next to Lucrezia, and took the cylinder from her. I turned it in my fingers. It looked corroded, dead. How do you know it's not pleasure wear? It has a magnetic label, worn, but legible enough. The label identifies the artifact as an archive chip. Historical document? This was exciting. So far we'd found nothing that had really told us anything about the civilization that had once thrived in this place. The abos had scavenged everything, twisted it into something new, or else destroyed it. Lucrezia hummed. Mm, it would appear so. Then can we jack into it? It looks damaged. The outer casing is marred but I estimate the chip itself is mostly intact. I shrugged. Okay, let's see, shall we? My heart had increased its pace. I don't know what I was expecting. Lucrezia took a few moments to decide how best to extract the information in the chip. She scanned it with light, inserted probes into the minuscule sockets, laved it with a chemical bath. Then... Satisfied, she extended an arm to the socket behind my ear, and we conjoined. 
Information hit me in a blizzard, and I pulled away, yelping as we disengaged. It's blistered! White noise! The sensoria do seem to slip, Lucrezia agreed. Some of them are corrupted. Try to find a clean section, I said. No, I think we should wait, Lucrezia said. Allow me to work on it first. By now, I was hooked. The chip promised a distraction from turning over the junk heaps. It promised a voice, as convincing as my personal reality. A voice from the past, our past, world's past. Good morning, Gaia, old mother. Today your dead children speak to me. I made a not-so-subconscious decision not to mention my find to anyone else on the team. Not yet. I had a feeling it would be taken from me, appropriated by Tall Lady, who was the senior historian on the team. I wanted to keep this chip to myself. Would it be like opening a tomb? I'd done plenty of that in my time, and what I'd found inside had only been rags of old lives. I could tell you what the owners of those bones ate for breakfast the day they died, but no way could I tell you what their long, shriveled eyes had once seen, nor what they perceived once they'd translated those images into thought. By midnight, Lucrezia told me she had the problem sorted out, although she seemed reluctant to proceed with our joint investigation. I could process this information myself, then play it back to you, In my opinion, the data is unstable. So, what's on it? A personal recording. An electronic journal, perhaps. A notebook. It's fragmented and beyond my ability to repair completely. Allow me to extract the existing data. I shook my head. No, Luce. I know my hardware is less sturdy than yours, and my software more likely to crash irreparably, but whoever made that recording is a kind of ancestor of mine. We need feedback, human feedback. I'm sure it will be of more value. Lucrezia cannot sigh, but her retinue of hums are most eloquent. She hummed. Hmm, I trust I am absolved from blame. Should this experiment prove unwise? Of course. I waved her caution away. Let's jack in. Let's ride. The first seconds were fried, gone. All I got was white noise and snow. My excitement plummeted. Maybe the whole chip was dead, despite the promising results of Lucrezia's initial tests. Maybe whatever was left could only be accessed by her. The boiling spectrum of random visual noise would give me a serious headache. It's no good, Luce, I said, readying myself for disengagement. Then, unexpectedly and abruptly, it all bloomed in my mind. Pixels converged into perspective and a sense of remote time formed around my inner eye. A virtual world shivered into focus. The data was empathic. Whoever had recorded it had wanted to share it utterly, This was more than a mere archive document, much more. I sensed myself as female, slim, and in perfect health. 
I was striding along a swaying bridge which was suspended from diamond fiber cables between two bamboo cage towers. I glanced to the side, but the world below was wreathed in mist. Still, from the vague, shadowy shapes I could see, I estimated I was about a thousand meters up in the air. I was aware of myself, but she, too, was aware of herself. We shared her body, or her non-local soul. It was difficult to determine, but the experience was at once euphoric and terrifying. She was aware of me, perhaps, only as a possible future audience. Disorientating. I could recall information about her as if I'd known it a long time. She was eighteen years old, with dark skin and a mass of braided hair. Her name was Shade. She wore a leather jacket, lacquer dyed with multicolored spiral patterns. Beneath it, she wore old trousers and a cotton T-shirt, their colors bleached and faded. A string of shells hung around her neck. As I became aware of this necklace, a memory formed: water hiss, foam. The trinket had come from a souvenir booth by the beach walk. Gradually, I became aware of the device that linked us. She was not using it as an implant via a neural socket, but it clung to the crevice behind her ear, extending a web of microscopic bioplastic filaments over her scalp. Somehow, these filaments interfaced with her mind. I was not familiar with this technology. But because I was able to use a more conventional method to extract this information, the device clearly had an array of methods to link with a human brain. There was the strange clarity of sound around us, multicolored noise of natural acoustics, voices remixed by wind. The girl was walking, walking, salt wind grazing her skin as she talked aloud, recording. The fronds of the device were buried beneath her hair, communing with her brain. This recording is of my life and my work, my mother's work too, although she's dead now. There are enigmas about the past, and my mother's love of history and mystery have been passed on to me. I want answers. I want to know what happened here, why everything changed. The legends say the people came down from the sky. And sometimes I think they're just stories. Other times, I get a feeling that the truth has been wrapped up in myths to hide it. Anyway, now I have this device, and it will help me. And I'm passing the information on to you, future souls. Heat, she was my mother, said that my father came from one of the rust islands out in the ocean. He was called alchemist. I reckon I got all my techno from him. Long before I was born, Heat worked on trying to discover the truth about history, the history of this place, and the Rust Islands. She told me how she met my father. One day, as she was scudding out to the islands to take scrapings and protein dip the lichen, she noticed that someone was flat winging it over the area using an official recorder. The ones that have the red logo. He landed before her, a frightening, handsome man. He said to her, "Hey, what are you doing here?" She says she answered, "Same as you, seems to me." They began to talk, 
and the chemistry happened. She talked a lot about that, the special non-verbal language between potential lovers, the quantum moments when the affair exists but does not. I never knew my father, never saw him. Heat wouldn't tell me why they parted, or even whether he was dead or still alive. This device I'm using now was his. When he met my mother, it had been in his family a long time, like a kind of relic. No one used it anymore, although he would show it to my mother and talk about what it could do if only someone could work out its secrets. It's like a psychic probe, and it can look into minds, but the mind it reaches most efficiently is that of the land itself. It reads memories, picking up traces of information that float around, thoughts, residue of events. My mother tried to get it to work, but couldn't, so she just wore it around her neck on a thong, a keepsake of her love affair with Alchemist. It came to me when she died, and, you know, I think it was waiting for me. I didn't bother trying to fix it with any of the tools he left at my mother's house. Half of them are arcane to me. I don't know their function. Heat used some of them as ornaments. She especially liked the one that's like a little cave of mirrors. I cleaned the device as best I could, bathed it in moonlit water, hung it out beneath the sun, buried it in quartz for 28 days, and it came alive for me. I put it behind my ear, and it took a hold. With my thoughts, I ask it to record, and it does. It's the same for receiving data. Shade's voice fell to silence, although I could still detect some sweet echo of her thoughts, wistfulness, questions. She stood gripping the segmented bamboo rail of the bridge, and through her, I could feel its warm smoothness. She peered down the estuary towards the ocean, but it was hidden now by a low-skirt mist. She narrowed her eyes, looking for silhouettes in the fog. It was as if she was talking to me, yet at the same time, it was me who was talking. If you look really hard, you can still see the Rust Islands at night from here. I want to go out there, but whenever I make the preparations to hire a scudder, I just change my mind, feel uneasy about it. Perhaps all that talk of ghosts when I was a kid somehow stuck in my head. <laughs> she laughed. It's dangerous, though. Lots of ways to die out there. Stray viruses, rusting hulks, blowholes, whirlpools, poisonous flotsam, you name it. Gray out. Shadow out, migraine fuzz, pain. I couldn't disengage fast enough. It was like an electric shock. Shut it off, Luce, shut it off. Ghosts of sea air currents, my breath. For a moment, I was dreaming in between the two worlds, micro-circuits and myths, deep disorientation. Lucrezia checked my vital signs, almost sighing in relief, it was a relieved kind of hum. I checked out normal. Enough for one day, suggested my AI with concern. I slept for a few hours, hot and uncomfortable in my narrow bed, despite the air conditioning. 
Then I stumbled out of the cabin into the blinding white sunlight of morning. My friend, Truce, was hunkered down in the gray dust next to the truck, sorting samples, his naked back plastered with unattractive UV filter. He turned round as I shambled towards him. Hi there, Cerami. He frowned. What you been up to in there, soul? You look ragged. I decided not to tell him. Oh, was sleeping, I said, elaborating a yawn. Beyond the peaks and domes of our temporary settlement, I could see Tall Lady gesturing at a small, reluctant gathering of Aborigines. She was trailed by the junior members of our team, who were busy recording, their faces set with earnest expressions. Why she was still bothering to continue with her fruitless interrogations, I do not know. Truce stared at me for a moment, his nose wrinkled up. Have you heard that Lena can't make contact with the retrieval bus? I shrugged. No, what's the problem? Interference? Maybe. She's been getting weird responses from the facility, too. Can't make direct access, but just receives recordings. There could be any reason for that, I said. He nodded. I know. Our stairs locked. Though neither of us voiced our thoughts, we'd had problems getting the license, never mind the funding, for this dig. The most paranoid of us thought there was a cover-up going on, that certain souls high up in the historical facility didn't want to risk us upsetting any of their airtight little theories about the past. We were out on our own, an unimaginably long way from the nearest inhabited world or station. Until the retrieval bus came, we were stranded. Before we'd left the organic, Tall Lady had tried to requisition a craft of our own, but had been denied. I didn't want to think about the implications of that now. Truce made an effort to brighten up. It's no problem. Lena will make contact with someone eventually. He jerked his head at the sky. There are a lot of souls out there. I had visions of us being rescued by some rusting old merchant freighter, having to spend several lifetimes in cold storage to get back home. I smiled. Yeah, of course there are. On the second day, as Lucrezia and I progressed with our study of Shade's recording, we discovered that the visuals, or the sound, would quite often muzz out completely, leaving a forlorn static it sounded like some long-distant alert beacon. By dusk, I was beginning to wonder whether the remainder of the chip was unreadable. Then, Lucrezia found another clean space. In the red evening light, I climbed the lookout tower on the banks of the estuary and went to sprawl in the late light. Tilted on my foam bed, I could look into the horizon where the sea skies swallowed another sunset, "'stubbing out the day. "'Sometimes there's a mist out there, "'and the island lights seem webbed and smeared "'like a dream receding, losing clarity, becoming opaque. "'As the sun sank, I sighed into the breezes "'and took Lucrezia from my pocket. "'We plugged into the next place in the old recording "'where the degeneration decreased. "'Immediately, I was online.' I could see a city, 
ziggurats within ziggurats, shattered in places by yawning canyons. The elements had carved a chaotic expression from the city remains. Strange mosses grew on the metals. Craters and hollows in the concrete threw back sound and shadow to the pocked, shattered curves. And the sculpted skyscape of geodesic domes The landscape was a camera obscura of the silvered cascade night sky. Blue-white and acid-yellow glows of chemical light and shivering pulsations of firelight, illuminations that signaled human life. I saw skeletal towers of bamboo and crystal fiber and massive domes that looked partly vegetable, partly manufactured, Ribbons of aerial walkways intersected high overhead, and below them lay a labyrinth of wider, silvery ribbons, canals. The city was beautiful in its chaos, but was this a culture emerging from destruction or sinking into it? Shade climbed down from the walkway, but for a while only static filled my head. I felt impatient, angry. No, don't go! Shade senses had degenerated into pink noise, but for audio. Then, a new voice filtered in. Male. The words he spoke were disembodied and sounded as if they came from a throat once sculpted from fine marble, now cracked, chipped, and stained. At first I could make no sense of them. I recognized, in Shade's mind, a frisson of interest. She desired this man... But she planned to hide the fact. He was the subject of study, and she must remain objective. Abruptly, the visuals were restored, and I saw him through her eyes. Dark, thin, with penetrating black eyes. His hair hung to his waist, and his face was scored with ritual scars. They were sitting on either side of a table, with rough cups set before them. The sweet taste of fruity liquor was in Shade's mouth. From her mind, I picked up the man's name, which she was repeating silently like a mantra throughout their conversation. Fire Tongue. He was renowned for his forthright speech, an earthwalker, a member of a secretive clan who claimed to guard ancient knowledge. She was unsure how much he'd tell her, but was reassured by the fact he'd agreed to speak to her at all. Perhaps she fascinated him. He took a sip of his liquor, gazing at her with amusement. You must know that among my clan, only shamans may use the earthways, he said. She knew she must be careful, delicate with her words. This is not the earthways, Fire. I'm following my mother's tradition. She was a historian. Fire Tongue wrinkled up his nose. You want to learn what you think I know, he smiled. Why does an historian want to learn the secret language of the earth? I could feel Shade's heart racing, yet her voice was serene. Well, it's not exactly that. History leaves traces all around us, and I use a special device to pick these traces up. She lifted her hair to show him where the device nestled around her ear. Sounds like stealing to me. Shade shook her head. Really, it's not. Let me explain about it. 
Whenever an event occurs, it leaves a kind of psychic energy behind it, a memory, like a photograph. This device has been passed down through generations of my father's family. Its use had been forgotten, but I was able to reactivate it. In the past, very old and very potent souls have used it. The device searches everywhere for transmissions. I work when and where I choose. It's easier to catch things at night, though, because I can concentrate then and relax. She leaned back and smiled. I am the aqueduct that meanders from one mountain top to another. He grinned back at her. It still sounds like stealing to me, an easy way to take the thoughts of the earth. You should work to earn that knowledge. She lifted her hands to him. Okay, I know your people use psychotropics and fast their bodies and have weird spiritual experiences, but they're not historians. My method might seem too easy to you, but I want the information for a different reason. Which is? I think we need to know the truth now. People conjecture about the past and make up myths about it. Everything's got wrapped up in stories. Firetongue laughed. If your device is so powerful, what do you need me for? Shade shook her head. Some things have been, I don't know, protected, perhaps. I think your people, the Earthwalkers, have retained a lost and forbidden knowledge. And you want me to share these secrets with you? She shrugged, wondering whether she'd spoken too plainly, perhaps offended him. Not all your secrets, no. I respect your traditions. But all I need is one clue, just one. And then me and my device can work out the rest. I don't want to strip your gods of divinity, fire. No matter what I discover, your reality is still valid. She felt too late. Her last remark was patronizing. Firetongue studied her for a moment. What are your thoughts on gods, then? He seemed to be testing her. What were the answers he wanted to hear? Shade cleared her throat, snatching time to compose her answer. <clears throat> I'm not saying I think they were human, but... She paused. The legends speak of a primitive race who lived here, who had no knowledge of their own... Then the gods came from the sky, cast out by their own kind, and they owned forbidden knowledge. This they passed to the people who began to worship water, who built their temples and their cities around networks of canals, designed in specific patterns. It all means something, Fire. There's a secret in the pattern, something... She raised her shoulders in a shrug, daring to glance into his eyes. His expression was bland. She couldn't tell what he was thinking. Tell me about the aqueduct, she said. The words were spoken carefully, filled with meaning. He raised his brows, took another sip of liquor. What about it? It is of great significance to your people, I know that. Why? What are its spirit stories? The intensity of her desire to learn his secrets and the certainty that he could help her flooded my awareness in a dull, 
unassuageable ache. I observed her feeling of need, that she must convince him to speak with her, trust her, and finally share his mind with her. It was all so real. I was there, with her, a discarnate entity within her brain, afraid she'd sense my presence, that I'd distract her. I wanted to advise her how to proceed, how to coax Firetongue to cooperate, sure that simply by thinking the words she would hear them. Ask to share his mysteries. Ask him to show you his way. Then Lucrezia buzzed in to remind me that this was just a recording and would I like her to stop the show for now? I decided to give it a rest for the night. Lucrezia had bitched about me experiencing the recording twice in one day and she was right to complain. Her welfare relied upon my well-being and I couldn't blame her for acts of self-preservation. Nobody wants a second-hand, empathetic A.I., My body ached and tickled as it recovered from the sensory noise effects. I found it hard to coordinate mind and body for a while. As I stood up, flashback images pulsed behind my eyes, and I wondered whether I was steady enough to brave the ladder to the ground. Lucrezia discreetly expanded flight veins and noiselessly rose to a hover. She obviously did not trust my balance enough to snuggle back to my pocket. I was okay until I reached the bottom when, suddenly, a city manifested around me. I saw steel and plastic cables interlaced with vines and twisting, snaking tree limbs. I looked up and saw gantries of concrete, wood, rope nets, and metal sheets, perspex, glass, concrete, struts, and bamboo, trees, habitation platforms, and a canal aqueduct that meandered overhead, from one mountaintop to another. This must be a memory, I reasoned bravely, trying not to panic. I observed objectively as the image shivered slowly from a scattering of pre-thought into linear recall. Then it was gone, and the rubbish heap extended all around me, filled with the ghosts of a lost age. Only the estuary was beautiful with its firefly lights. I felt depressed again. Luce, she alighted on my shoulder. I got a flashback then. Not unexpected. No, but I don't need this junk floating round my head, popping out now and then. One of Lucrezia's empathetic functions is the ability to house-clean my mind— She was my personal psychologist and neurologist, as well as a tool of work. She attached herself to my neural socket, and for a few moments my awareness disappeared from reality. When I came back, I felt lighter, a little intoxicated. Thanks, I said. Much better. Lucrezia buzzed round my head as I walked back to the settlement. Tell me what you experienced this time, she said. I related all that I could recall. Our dead friend is poking around in the past, I think, like we are, but it was getting a bit creepy. I was assimilating too much, making it part of my reality. Not good. I did warn you. Yes, you did, but you know I'll have to go on. That, too, is expected. 
I must monitor you carefully for psychosis. Naturally. Luce, I think this is really big. I get the feeling, well, this girl's going to show us all we wanted to know coming here. We must make hard copy of this material as we go along. Even though I was wary of what Shade might do to me, scared she'd make some kind of possession attempt, albeit unwittingly, I couldn't wait to get back at the recording and discover more. I knew that, before I progressed any further, I should tell Tall Lady about my research. But I was enjoying the privacy, and even after two meetings, was becoming possessive enough about my ghost girl not to want to share her. Tall Lady would probably decide that our resident psych, Brally, should examine the chip. His training was more suitable for the task, and his personality profile adapted for it. I knew what I was doing was dangerous, but the danger had hooked me, and I could not surrender the thrill. Also, Tall Lady had other problems to attend to. Lena had still not made contact with either the organic or the retrieval bus. Much as no one wanted to admit it, it was looking increasingly as if we'd been abandoned. I was aware of the mounting hysteria in my colleagues, but since I'd discovered Shade, the need to return home was not quite so desperate. I felt I had work to do here, and the retrieval bus's arrival in two days' time might curtail that. By now, no one believed the bus would turn up at all. While everyone else began to panic, I remembered my talk with Truce. Someone would find us eventually. Already the wasted landscape surrounding us had taken on new significance for me. I saw in the jumbled ruins the echo of the rambling culture I had glimpsed. It had all happened here. The rubble was dead and useless, but the memory of a fascinating past lived on. The next time I accessed the chip, Lucrezia had to spin forward, past a ravel of degraded data, more static, until we reached a section of pure thought and unblemished recording. I zapped online and fell into a rainstorm of awareness. Energy sizzled through me and cells of information whirled around me. I nearly disengaged. What had she done? What had she been doing while I wasn't there? I blinked, and it was a bizarre aural visual experience, a slick sound that matched the sensation, a flickering of sight, retinas retaining the image of an inverted silhouette. I heard and felt a subsonic rushing noise throughout my mind and body. I saw, with more than my eyes, wild, shivering patterns evolving in and out of chaos. Fractal growth. My breathing was tidal, a soothing motion with the backbeat of a rhythmic heart. I was no longer simply she, I, but she, he, I, a neurosomatic melding. As my body shuddered into being in that world, I realized that she was making love with Fire Tongue. I could smell him, taste him, hear his grunting breath. His cheek was pressed to her cheek, and violating tendrils of her recording device had crept into his hair, his thoughts. Now, 
crusting ecstasy. Shade traveled his mind and observed his memories. He did not know what she was doing. She had seduced him, clearly, and was now stealing his secrets. This was not the kind of party I wanted to gatecrash unawares, but before I could disengage, I descended into pure experience. Sparkling air, his nerve endings, a blanket of sensual motion. She drew in breath, clenching her vaginal muscles, experiencing the sensation in his loins. The ignition swirled and clustered into a viscous electric charge that, via her spinal column, rushed smooth and snaky into her mind. It felt like submolecular fusion, a spectrum pulse into his mind's eye. Real-time vision roared on a monochrome flight path through our brain. And there was the image of the aqueduct, revolving like a gargantuan DNA spiral. When the water came, all that was unclean was washed away. They were human. The words formed in her mind in time to an orgasmic tremor. I felt my body spasm. My eyes rolled backwards into their sockets. Then the recording ran into a cascade of disjointed image segments, landscapes, sounds, scents, split seconds of random, sweet, semi-corrupted fragments shattering like a waterfall in her mind. If this was information exchange... We did not have sex as good nowadays. The thought came to me as a confidential aside. He knows. When the recording degraded into white noise, I was almost hysterical. I needed to know more, experience more. Obligingly, Lucrezia fast-forwarded, and I got deep into the rush of noise and prickly touch I knew I should disengage until we found a clean track again, but was too impatient. If the experience damaged me, I was beyond caring. Then the world bloomed around my senses once more, and I exhaled deeply in relief. We were strolling along the beach walk, with fire tongue beside us. Foliage to either side of the creaking boards exuded a pungent evening scent. The sky was scarlet and orange, fading to deepest purple up where the stars began. Shade and I did not hold hands with our lover, although it seemed as if our bodies were touching. If he'd realized we'd eavesdropped on his thoughts, he held no grudge. We were easy with one another, walking through the fiery dusk. We wandered out along the stubs of long-eroded sea cliffs, comfortable in silence. Fire Tongue lit a pipe, and we shared a smoke as we walked. To the right, placid ocean reflected the lurid sky, while to the left, the land sloped gently downwards, jungled by city and biomass. We paused and looked down upon the silver arteries of the canals, the terraces of lock gates. "'Tell me about the water,' we said." Firetongue leaned down and kissed our hair. Do I need to tell you anything now? We could tell he believed our invasion of his mind-soul was based on purely carnal urges. Yes, tell me what you know. 
We reached for one of his long hands, squeezed his fingers. Okay, let's talk. His voice was amused, but now, because feeling had ignited within him, he was also curious about us. We sat down upon the damp evening grass and watched the glint of the water below. Fire, the mists tell us that, in the past, there was no fresh water here, but that cannot be true. Without water, there could not have been people. So there was water, and there were people, but they must have been primitive, disorganized. The gods, whoever they were, came and built the canals, and from there on, civilization was born. But the strangers must have given far more than just the instructions on how to build an irrigation system. Even now, the waterways are regarded as mystical. Everybody knows there's some kind of secret attached to them, but no one questions it or speaks about it. It's like historical amnesia. We've forgotten something important about our own past. Firetongue looked down at us indulgently, reached to stroke our hair. Why is it so important to you, Shade? You're obsessed. Can't you just accept what is? We shook our head. No. As a historian, I am fascinated by the discrepancies. A long time ago, some great change happened here, a massive technological advance. Almost overnight, an extremely primitive culture acquired science and technology. The gods came. I have my theories about it. We have to know what really happened in order to know ourselves. Firetongue sighed. Have you ever considered that the gods might just be a representation of our own evolution? We learned how to advance because we discovered the spirit of the earth. The gods are the spirits of nature. From them, we can learn all we need to know. And if we listen properly, with open ears, we can hear the whisper of their wisdom. We turned to look up at him. No, fire. People came here from, from somewhere else. People with more knowledge. From the sky. Isn't that what the myths tell us? And in our mind, the furtive thought, isn't that what your memory tells us? He laughed. <laughs> You're crazy. We laughed, too, to humor him. Perhaps I am, but... Think about my ideas, and there anything in your clan tradition that might back up my theory? We are not historians. I know. Clan gossip will do. He exhaled slowly. The Rust Islands, he said. Yes? That was where the gods built their city. They abandoned it after so many years. They vanished. They left the legacy of their knowledge behind. We sighed, eyes closed. Why did they leave? He touched our shoulder, the hollow of our spine, with his long fingers. They told only the wisest of the ancient people. The knowledge was forbidden. I can't tell you more, Shade. These are secret memories. The shamans know them and relive them through the earth. Go out to the Rust Islands with your clever little device. Maybe the gods will speak to you there. We leaned against him. Thank you, fire. Thank you. 
Like the closing scene of a romantic film, the image faded out gently with beautiful flares of color. The chip died on me. The retrieval bus had not arrived. Neither had Lena been able to make contact with the facility on the organic. Tall Lady had kept her cool and quoted the usual platitudes about interference, sunspots, and transatmospheric storms. Only the most stupid were mollified by that. I wasn't bothered about it. Something was taking form in my head. Something so momentous, I dared not even believe it. Was Shade's discovery somehow linked with us? Like Firetongue's gods, we had come down from the sky and been stranded here. Were we reliving some ancient event? Perhaps that was why the authorities had been so touchy about granting us a license for this expedition. There was a secret here. When I looked around the shanty towns of the Abos, I was filled with despair. There was nothing there to remind me of the green, the people, the inland waterways thronged with colored barges. I was suffering withdrawal because Luce had hit a problem with the recording and was taking her time smoothing it out. I knew she thought I needed a rest and was probably dragging her circuits on purpose. I pined for my shade and her lover, who seemed so much like my lover. I wondered what conversations they were having, what Shade was thinking, and whether she had learned the things she wanted to know. Had she visited the Rust Islands yet? I felt strongly that it was all continuing without me, and that rather than containing a fragment of Shade's world, the recording chip was a doorway, an interface, right into it. While I was unable to use the device, I turned my attention to the Abos, hoping that by examining their culture I might uncover some remnant, some memory of Shade's time. In comparison to the vivid characters of her world, the Abos seemed like imaginary beings, the surreal deconstructions of a dream. Still, somewhere in their racial memory, my Shade lived and walked, a goddess, when I gazed upon their primitive shrines and annotated their primitive rites, I wondered if their crude deities were corrupted representations of Shade or someone like her from the past. What would these people think if she could somehow be brought forward in time and presented to them? Would they believe she was their ancestor? I became melancholy. The bright culture had gone, and these grubbing people— sorting through rubbish, were all that remained. Truce came up to me and complained I wasn't spending much time with the team nowadays. You mustn't be depressed, he said. We've got to live with this. With what? He shrugged. Staying here? If we're stuck, we've got to think about making this place habitable. I shook my head. Someone will come. It's too far-fetched to think we're stranded here, attractive though the thought may be at times. I thought you were pining for the organic. I glanced at him. I don't know what I'm pining for, actually. He laughed good-naturedly. <laughs> come back to us, Sarami. Stop wandering 
Nobody knows where your head is nowadays. I smiled in what I hoped was a convincing manner. You're missing so much, he told me. We need to think about how we can sustain ourselves, perhaps indefinitely. Lem thinks that some of our bioanalysis equipment could be converted to help with agriculture and Whoa! We're not supposed to give primitive cultures evidence or knowledge of our technology. Neither are we supposed to get abandoned. Truce rolled his eyes. Think about it, soul. These people are the descendants of our ancestors. They had it all once anyway. Not exactly. Anyone with a gram of sense, incentive, and noose about them abandoned planet and ran for the colonies. What was left behind... I gestured around me. Was rubbish. It might be dangerous to give these people any of our knowledge. I don't know why I argued that way. Why should I care? I wanted warmth, comfort, and good food, just like anyone else. We could do with your help, soul, Truce said hopefully. I sighed. Okay. He brightened. Good. Come along to the canteen with me and take a look at the plans Lim's created. Interesting design. We need an efficient water system, and the existing wells are certainly not bad. Lim thinks they should be excavated, cleaned up. The town would be built around a canal system. What? Presentiment furred my skin. He's made plans. Well, yes. What's up? I grabbed his arm. I want to see them now. There it was, a beautiful hologram created by Lim's AI. He'd put a lot of imagination into the design and a lot of wishful thinking. The rubbish tips were blanketed with green, with foliage and with crops. A mandala of canals circled and bisected the greenery, and there was the aqueduct. A graceful serpent linking the mountaintops, carrying water from Samdi Lake. We found a form of bamboo, Truce said. Should be able to cultivate it, use it for building materials. Bamboo? Yes. Are you okay, Sarami? The bridges were strung from hilltop to hilltop, daring aerial walkways. Lim's hologram even had little people walking across their swaying expanses. If I looked close enough, would one of them be shade? I felt dizzy, sick, but elated. I fled back to Lucrezia. Flood me in, Luce. I need to experience the last segment now. We must be on the brink of some great discovery that would blow our theories about the past into infinity. Lucrezia urged me to speak to Tall Lady about this, but I was still reluctant. One more time, I said. Just one more time. I must communicate with her again. This time, I intended to try and make her aware of my presence. Shade had been in the Rust Islands for several days. Her skin was itching from the spores puffed from the lichens that grew on the rotting metal. She was surrounded by a surreal vista of what looked like skeletal scaffolding. There was little metal to be seen. All was furred by the lichens, fire red, luminous green, dull yellow. 
She hadn't found anything. Others had been there hundreds of years before and picked the place clean. Every day she came across timid mudlarks scavenging for any last morsels, who fled like ragged birds from the sight of her. She looked at the strange ruins and wondered what kind of beings the gods had been. It was hard to imagine any human body feeling comfortable in these surroundings. Her device had been unable to pick up any information of use. She was squatting down on a wide deck that was filigreed with rot holes, staring out over the ocean. Was this the end of her quest? I sensed her depression. Don't give up, Shade. It was then that she sensed me. Her spine stiffened. She became alert. Her hand fluttered to behind her ear. I know you're there, she whispered. Speak to me. Keep looking. Lucrezia's voice intruded. She can't hear you, Sarami. It's something else she senses, perhaps something she wants to believe in. All the time I'd spent with Shade, she'd used her device for recording. Now she was receiving. She closed her eyes and the world went black for me too. But even as she received, the device recorded the information. I felt her mind straining to translate the faint, gritty images that flickered like gray static across her inner eye. It was like watching a badly tuned transmission. Earth memories. She got to her feet with her eyes still closed. Carefully, using only her sixth sense, she began to walk across the treacherous, fragile deck, letting the ancient messages guide her. For a moment, too brief, it all came back. I could see now what the Rust Islands were, some kind of primitive factory. It looked smaller in this early memory image, it must have grown with the years. There was a group of them standing outside a facility of some kind, laughing together as if posing for a photograph. Their skins were brown, and their clothes, which looked vaguely like uniforms, were worn and tattered. Some wore necklaces and bangles fashioned from shells and driftwood. The gods. One woman stood slightly apart from the rest, her hands deep in her trouser pockets, she had a strong face, with a wry, crooked smile. Her dark hair was cut square around her shoulders, although her thick fringe was pushed back with a bandana. She seemed to stare right into me, as if I were the camera's eye. Before I could process what I was seeing, perspective shifted. Now Shade's perception looked back towards land, up the estuary. Her city did not exist yet. What lay there was a strange, colorless sprawl, but with localized areas of green. Building must have begun on the canals already. What happened to you? Shade cried aloud. What happened? Her voice seemed to scare the ghosts away, for the images broke up into gray muzziness once more. She opened her eyes, gasping, and saw a flapping curtain of seabirds lift off the estuary. "'Damn!' she said. "'Damn!' She began to march back the way she'd come, and in her anger was not quite so careful with her feet. Perhaps she really had invoked the gods. One moment 
I was with her out in the sea air. The next there was a splintering, groaning sound, and the visuals went haywire. I thought the chip had gone strange on me again, but then realized that Shade had fallen through the deck. My skin broke out in a cold sweat. Was she injured? Dead? Shade, get up! I heard her groan, experienced her anxiety as she tested her limbs for breaks. Nothing more than a few scrapes. She had landed on something yielding. The walls of the place she'd dropped into were laced with corrosion. Ragged holes let in the light. But in the dimness, she could see that something had been etched deeply into the disintegrating metal. It looked like some kind of ancient wall painting, a picture found in the recesses of a tomb. Shade stood up, went to examine it. She took out a small torch from her belt and ran its beam over the pocked lines. A message from the gods? Here, where the viaduct meanders from hilltop to hilltop? Here, where the cluttered shores of Samandy Lake hides in its valley? A cave, a tomb, where treasures lie. The sky woman sits in the cave and holds before her a strange device, a weapon, a magic artifact, a talking mirror. Shade examined the picture. Then she was turning away, leaping up for the hole she had made in the ceiling of the chamber, pulling herself out, hurrying almost frantically back to where her scudder was moored. She would go to the cave, for the secret waited for her there. It must still lie hidden, awaiting the light her entrance would thrust upon it. It had to be there. Of course it would be. Didn't I have proof? But ultimately, I could not speak to her with my mind, only my memory. She did not record anything when she made her final journey. Perhaps she felt it was too personal. I don't know. Somehow, it felt right. The end section of the recording was very clean. She returned to the mobile stack. Inside, she generated her father's power and removed the recording chip from behind her ear. She sighed. Well, this is for you. I hope it makes the journey okay. She placed it into the transmitting dish of a small machine and, via a very sophisticated AI, activated its power. I had never seen technology like this. I struggled to make contact, make her feel me, as the chip kept on recording data, even as she activated the machine. Too late. I was separated. I don't know what really happened, she said, but I feel really close to you. At least I can give you a warning. But of what? Of what? Darkness. The recording was finished. I sat in the darkness of my truck, stunned. Lucrezia made no sound. Outside, the warm evening thickened. Soon, I was strong enough to begin the message. Take this in, Luce. I began to speak, even though I knew that, in that far distant future, when Shade will find it, and Lucrezia is old, battered, and faulty, all it will tell her is, 
we came to study and were left behind. There was so much I wanted to say. I put my thoughts in this data journal chip. I bring sound to silent information. And there you go. Like I say, copyright is Storm. Storm, thank you so much. And Amy, thank you. We've got Amy on next week as well with her, looking back at genre history. So finally, first chapters. Hi, this is Andres Bergen, the um, author of Tobacco Stained Mountain Goat. And um, I have a new book I've just finished, which is called 100 Years of Vicissitude. The story is basically um, a mix of genres, uh, fantasy, science fiction, steampunk, uh, romance, drama, detective story, historical fiction. Um, it's about two 100-year-old geisha, uh, identical twin geisha, one of whom detests the other and has a bit of an Iago complex. And the story is narrated by a man called Warham E. Deeps, who is, in fact, the antagonist from Tobacco Stain Mountain Goat, although this book is not really related to it at all. In the beginning, the opening chapter you're about to hear, uh, Deeps believes he's actually dead. And um, the reading of it by myself is not exactly how I pictured it. Uh, when I wrote the character, I was imagining more someone like uh, George Sanders or Ian McKellen or James Mason, one of those beautiful people with those amazingly rich voices so I hope um, I do some justice to the reading uh, a bit of an Australian twang I guess but um, yeah the proof is in the actual text itself the book will be published uh, later this year through Perfect Edge Books which is a new imprint and um, I hope you enjoy it this is 100 Years of Vicissitude first up a disclaimer I suspect I'm a dead man. I have meagre proof, no framed-up certification. Nothing to toss in a court of law as evidence of a rapid departure from the mortal coil. I recall a gun was involved, pressed up against my skull, and a loud explosion followed. An ancient Chinese philosopher, whose name escapes me, reckoned that a journey of a thousand miles must begin with a single step. This was prior to the advent of gunpowder, so I'm wondering what fluff the fellow would have churned out concerning a single bullet. Having proved my credentials, citing the crackpot savant while singing in a footnote, allows me to get straight to the point. There is no neat beginning with which to start things. And while debarkation here might be meaningful to the hoi polloi, so far as I was concerned, hardly. My grand entrance in these parts elicited no dull, heavy, monotonous clang of a divine bell, let alone a jaunty toot tooting of car horns. Festivities, it seemed, were off the agenda. The climate? Well, this wasn't balmy enough to postulate the outer suburbs of hell, but paradise remained well and truly lost, and one saw nary a pitchfork nor harp. I suppose a better address would be the place to find the pearly gates, while St. Peter must have been gallivanting on French leave, a blessing since I'm scarcely one for preachy types. Lacking to my mind was a suitable background score banged together by Chopin, though with Frederick Francois out of the picture was the opportune setting for Victor Laszlo to shepherd a rousing rendition of La Marseillaise. 
You might recall the suavely scarred, excessively honourable resistance leader from the film Casablanca. Sadly, the man was nowhere. At times I found myself humming the melody deprived of Lazo's guidance, but, to be honest, test pattern music would have sufficed. Alas, I was indulged with silence. Not for my ears the faintest chorus of cicadas, wild squawk of ravens, or a reassuring rumble of distant traffic. Tiresome Christian Vespers and their Muslim stand-in Adhan remained mute, and there appeared to be few two little darlings to belt out for me oranges and lemons. In the moments that I stopped humming as I hoofed it along, I heard sparsely a sound, a reminder of the hush that prevails with snow. Hereabouts were fleeced of the sight of pirouetting flakes, so I initially considered hearing loss was a byproduct of the hop, skip, and lunge from life to a possible demise. A rival thought that had alternately gone insane laid across my mind, but let's not go there now. Although it was plain to see this domain went through the clockwork motions of day and night, and while the fear was more terra firma than Elysian Shangri-La, some aspects were awry. For one thing, the damn weather never committed. Occasionally the wind picked up or a light mist draped the horizon, but there was naught I could point to and declare, I say, there's the sun. I marked an absence of rainfall, thunder, or hail. I missed the rain. Where I came from, it used to pour down by the bucket load. The sky was a canvas of flinty grey, looking like it was painted with a bold brush and careless abandon. At one time I spotted a sign writer at work up there in the heavens. If I expected surrender Dorothy, I was thwarted. The baffling word Jihi slowly dissipated and became nothing. No matter how far I went, the venue otherwise refused to change. Around me unraveled a vague, diminishing landscape with barren trees and otherwise no remarkable feature. No cities, no towns, no enticing attractions. Forget a parade or a semicircle of wagons overturned to dispel hostile assault by natives. I was constantly struck by the dreariness of the place, as if a frumpy aunt's discarded beige stocking filtered the view. There was the odd shack, gloomy house, a lean-to or tent, nothing registering significant, and nary a rolled-out red carpet. Some of these places had a crucifix carved on their exteriors, with the added scraping of a vertical divot on the right side of the cross. This resembled less a religious symbol than a cretin sloppy attempt at the number four. The inhabitants, few and far between, hid behind rough-hewn curtains or skulked in darkened alcoves. Hence their communication skills came across as altogether disengaged, and I thought, to hell with them, figuratively speaking, of course. So it was, amid these mundane individuals and across this scenery, dull as dishwater, that I first found myself trudging. Which way I ought to have headed depended a good deal on where I wanted to get, and to be honest, it didn't appear to matter which way I went. Despite sage advice from Lewis Carroll that getting somewhere should be just a matter of walking, no matter how much I walked, I reached nowhere. This pointless labour I undertook on shoddy paths made of clay and marked with washed-out saffron-stained bricks, slapped down willy-nilly between the odd sprouting of wild Indian tobacco, white chrysanthemums and rue. The surface of the roads needed a hearty levelling by one of those giant rolling pins you see at cricket matches. Yet my inappropriate footwear remained grateful. It was something else that irked me. Earlier on, I referred to the lack of visible riffraff. Even so, up ahead on the odd occasion was a diminutive character, half my height, flitting through the scrappy woodland these paths trod. The blighter was never less than 50 or 60 feet away, so it was impossible to distinguish details aside from a scarlet anorak. I found myself entertaining the bothersome notion that Big Bad Wolf is the role I was earmarked to play, yapping about and snapping on the coattails of Red Riding Hood. Let's cut to the chase here. 
one might age seriously hampered physical pursuit or a potential shining career in pantomime, the only achievable huffing and puffing would have been the rattle of frail lungs. <sighs> oh, and there was uh, another reason I let this individual be. I once saw a suspenseful Donald Sutherland film called Don't Look Now. In that story, Sutherland gives chase to another child-sized fugitive in red. He presumes this is his recently deceased daughter, but it turns out to be a homicide or dwarf. Nothing is what it seems. Better to bide my time, chase nobody, and ramble solo. In hindsight, I could have easily fit into a hazy pastoral painting by William Turner. Man in bedroom attire crossing a bland brook, or some such kerfuffle. It could sell for a fortune and add nothing special to an assiduously lit museum wall. Artistic overkill aside, I do believe I was going to tell you a tale. But on second thought, let's chalk this inference up as bunk. Rather than a depressingly singular account, it's going to be a mishmash of anecdotes, neither for the sake of brevity or the saving of a few desperate trees. I don't aspire to be that kind of chap. I'd say instead my objective in doing a merge is plainly because these anecdotes happen to interlink. Let's press on, shall we? The death of a broken-down old man is, unquestionably, the least poetical topic in the world. What then occurred, however, seemed curious at the time. Following up on brief, if considerable pain, pitch blackness ensued. No, I wasn't fortunate enough to see that old cliché, the beckoning white tunnel offering rapturous fireworks aplenty. As I say, it was too dark to apprise of any such thing. Cursory entertainment like chess, a pack of playing cards, a neurotic white bunny with a fob watch. All of them failed to materialize. Even if they were there, I never would have spotted the things. As you may hazard a guess, that experience was unconscionably dull, yet worse was at hand. I set up shop in these whereabouts. For want of a noble tag, let us dub the place the hereafter, since I'm here after I allegedly carked it. Here after. Yes, I agree, an infuriating moniker and miles away from quick-witted bon mot. You could always employ your imagination to dig us up a better one. In the meantime, we're high and dry. After being here a while, a form of psychosis set in. I put this down to lack of stimulating company and the vapid wretchedness all about. This mental unbalance showed up in the way I harangued myself with incoherent soliloquies, a shade like this one. There was no orderly patent to command proceedings in the old grey matter upstairs, and on countless occasions I ended up exasperating me personally with puerile wisecracks. Possibly it was one way in which I fended off the truth. There was no epiphany. In this particular hereafter, Revelation had cleaned up, decamped, and taken with him all notions of figuring out the meaning of life. I do concede little grief that there was no Virgil, or any other Roman poet resurrected by Dante, waiting with a street directory. Neither was there a cowed footman out to menace tourists with a garden hoe, and Mana was struck from the carte de jour. Perhaps Cerberus, the triple-headed guard dog of the underworld, fled his post to go chasing three sticks, while Sharon, with his dinghy to Hades, was amiss. This was actually a windfall, since I'd been marooned without coinage in my mouth or any place else, so it would have been difficult to bribe the man or invest in stakes for the hound. And by the by, don't go fooling yourself about a handy hardcover ledger atop a podium made of gold, one in which we could tally up a person's lifetime pros and cons in separate columns, brandishing a baptismal balance and a funereal one written with some celestial feathered quill. 
Such a tome was also amiss, and the only pedestals they came across were one or two decidedly out-of-place plastic milk crates, along with the random stumps of cadaverous cypress trees. Talking of decrepitude, I felt I could pit Methuselah in the age stakes. Far older than the twilight years I leapt up in the land of the living, because at least in that place I had purpose. Here I meandered through the choice offcuts of oblivion, and the ragged grey beard I had sprouted was a sign. While I admit to having vaguely doubted the continuing growth of hair and nails after death, I was never inclined to think I would become proof of the pudding. Well, disclaimers pushed to one side, a personal introduction is in order to avail you of the legerless bugger steering this monologue, since tawdry is how it may appear to others. My name is Warham E. Deeps. The E stands for Evelyn, an appellation that can be applied to both men and women. Dismally more often the latter. In the past, I tended to share this middle name with few people. The reticence appears to have been scrubbed away after my bow out from the mortal plane. Last hurrah and all that. I'm quite unfussed handing it over to you now. When I presumably kicked the bucket, I was 71 years old, just a month and three days shy of 72. Even at my overripe age, I kept track of the date. I was fond of celebrating my birthday and liked to mark the big occasion with panache. I'm not sure a single other soul shared the joy, but that's beside the point, is it not? Is it not? Hmm. And there you go, that is Starship Sova 239. Put to bed! I do hope you've enjoyed it. And thank you, I forgot to mention this at the beginning of the show, thank you so much for all the kind of nice emails regarding, you know, world domination. If you haven't understood what world domination is, if you listened to last week's show, this is where we kind of laid down the foundations for four podcasts. Yes, we've got Starships over, Tales to Terrify, there will be Crime City Central and Protect Project Pulp coming soon. If you want to narrate for those, you know, we're all now looking for narrators, you know, get in touch with us, starshipsover at gmail.com. If you think we're doing a fantastic job and you want to support these shows, please hop over to the front of the website, please, and donate. That would be fantastic. There's buttons there ranging from 250 to 20 monthly donations and a one-time. Listen, it would mean a lot to us. Thank you so much. Until next week. Just like to see it. Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure machine. Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.